Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Alistair, and uh, I'm uh, broadcasting today from Hong Kong. Uh, it's good to be with you, both online and those of you who are there in person. Uh, today, our passage is from Hebrews chapter 3, uh, and I'm going to give you an overview of the passage before honing in on a couple of verses in the middle of the passage, which I think is, uh, which shows the crucial part of our author's intention uh, here today. So the chapter, um, actually, we haven't, we haven't read it out, have we? So I'm going to read that out to you. And if you can follow along in your Bibles, I understand you're using the ESV, so that's also what I'll be reading today. <clears throat> Starting from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through to 4, verse 13. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were, that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, justice to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter that rest. Although his words were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since it therefore remains for some to enter it, 
and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So that's the passage for today. And in our passage today, uh, we see the, um, as I give an overview of this passage, in the middle of the passage of chapter three. Ali, um, we, oh we, yes? We can't hear, see your PowerPoint at the moment. You're not sharing oh. your PowerPoint at the moment. That's okay, that's okay. okay. Um, yeah, I'll share it when, yeah, when I need to. <laughs> I won't be using a lot of the PowerPoint today. I just have a couple of verses that I will throw up uh, later on um, to draw attention to certain aspects. Um, but if you have your Bibles open in front of you, um, whether it's on the screen or uh, in physically in front of you, that will be very helpful as we go, uh, go through it. As I said, I'm going to give you an overview of the passage first before we hone in on a couple of verses in the center of the passage, uh, which is the crucial part of our author's intention. And the chapter begins by telling us to consider Jesus, who is faithful as a son over God's house. What does it mean that Jesus was faithful? Well, last week you looked at chapter 2, and in verse 9, uh, in, back in chapter 2, we're told how Jesus was faithful to his purpose. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, we read, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So back in chapter 2, uh, we, we saw that uh, Jesus was um, humbled. Uh, he became lower than the angels. He came uh, uh, to live um, as a human being here on earth, um, and he suffered and died. So when it says that here that Jesus remained faithful, what it's talking about is Jesus' faithfulness even unto death. Jesus was faithful on our behalf. And so that's why chapter 3 begins by asking us to consider Jesus, that same Jesus that he was talking about in chapter 2, who was faithful uh, all the way unto death. Because of his faithfulness, we are included into God's house. Now, Jesus, who is being over God's house, uh, is worthy of more honor than the house itself. As it says, Moses was a servant, uh, was faithful as a servant in God's house. But even though he was a servant uh, over God's people, he's still part of God's house. Jesus, however, establishes God's house. He's the builder of the house. Uh, and as we see, the builder of the house has more honor than the house. In fact, uh, the, the builder of the house gets his glory from the house. The house testifies to the glory of its builder. 
and the more glorious the building, the more glory goes to the builder, the architect, the designer. And so the church is a living monument to the glory of the builder. But the very reason why the church exists is because of the builder. And so the very reason why we are included in the household of God is because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And that's why this passage starts by telling us to consider Jesus, to consider his faithfulness. The second half of this passage, the second half of this chapter, is built around a quote from Psalm 95. Uh, it's a big quote uh, from verses 7 to 11, and it's, it's in fact the second half of Psalm 95, quoted here in full. And to understand the way that the author uses this passage, you have to understand that there are three periods of time that are contained in it. The first is the history of the people of God who are entering or who failed to enter the promised land. The second part is here in Psalm 95, which is written hundreds of years later after the events of entering the promised land and is looking back at those events, refreshing them for a new audience. That's why he's, uh, the psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did back in the rebellion. Then we have a third time period, which is the author of the, the, the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is looking back at the psalm and back further at the events of the Exodus and applies these words to the churches of his day. Now, Psalm 95 is referring back to an episode in Israel's history that we can read about in Exodus and in Numbers where the Israelites, after having been freed from slavery in Egypt, having seen the mighty acts of God, the way that he cast these plagues onto Egypt, the way that he brought them out of Egypt, the way that he uh, demolished Pharaoh's army that, uh, that chased them and was threatening to wipe them out. Despite having seen these mighty acts by God, the Israelites continually failed to put their trust in God and in his servant Moses. They grumbled. They complained, they rebelled. When they reached the promised land, they were afraid and they didn't want to enter the promised land, the land that God had brought them to. So back they went into the desert and there a rebellion started. Some Israelites elected to follow a leader who wanted to take them back to Egypt, back to the land of slavery. But God's judgment fell upon these people. This is the rebellion that the psalmist is referring to when he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is a key line. This line is a key line for our writer. And he actually quotes it three times. Uh, first of all, he quotes it in the block quote of the psalm here. Second time, he quotes it in verse 15 to sum up what he just said. And a third time, he quotes it in chapter 4, verse 7. And he uses this line as a warning and also as an encouragement uh, to apply that to his readers. In the last part of the passage uh, that, that we read today, uh, over in chapter four, the author picks up the last line from the psalm, the bit about the Israelites not entering the rest, the rest of God. And this refers to the fact that the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years and that generation died in the desert because they distrusted God, rebelled against him, hardened their hearts and continually provoked him. It was the next generation 
that actually ended up entering the land, who were led by Joshua and Caleb, who were the only ones from that first, first generation who trusted God to lead them into God's rest. Today, I want to focus on the verses immediately following the quote of the psalm. That is verses 12 and 13. I think they are the key verses in this chapter because this is where the author spells out what he really wants his readers to do. So we'll be spending some time in these verses. But first, I want to show you uh, something in the immediate context. And to do that, I need to explain a little bit about the layout of our Bibles, the Bibles you might have in front of you or, or online. Uh, they're laid out with chapters and verses, uh, with paragraphs um, and, and settings in, in this way. But the layout of the titles in your Bible were not like that in the original. They weren't laid out that way. Um, they were placed this way by our translators to make it easier to read, to give summary headings to each section and to break it up. And these are generally very helpful. It's a lot easier to read these sections broken up than if we just had a single slab of text for each book, which was how it was, how each letter was in the original. But that means that we can forget that the sections are actually linked up together. Or we don't say, see the way in which they are linked. For instance, if you look at uh, your, uh, your Bibles, you can see easily the quote from Psalm 95 in verses 7 to 11. In the Bible that I've got in front of me, it's, it's in bold, um, it's framed, it's uh, indented, uh, it's clearly set apart. This quote and the verses following that follow it are a stark warning to the readers not to harden their hearts and fall away, like the Israelites literally fell in the desert. But what we might miss is that these warning verses are framed by two verses that talk about the confidence that the writer has uh, that the, his readers will, in fact, endure in verses 6 and verse 14. So I'm going to put that on the screen now uh, so that you can see it. Okay. So confidence and, and hope uh, are what he's talking about in these verses. So verse... 6 and verse 14 frame the quote uh, of Psalm 95 and his discussion of that psalm. Verse 6 says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These two very similar verses tell us of the confidence that the writer has that his readers will in fact hold fast to that confidence. He shares that confidence with them. It's our confidence, our boasting in our hope. Uh, we will hold our confidence firm to the end. So why is this, why am I telling you this? Why is this important? Well, we want, what we want to understand is that these verses frame the, uh, the warning passage. So we should be asking the question, if the writer is so confident that his readers will hold fast to their confidence and, and the boasting in their hope and they will hold their original confidence firm to the end, why does he warn them in this way? 
why is he using this passage in Psalm 95 to warn them? Well, the answer to that is, it's because this warning and the exhortation that he draws from the warning passage in Psalm 95 is how the readers will hold fast to their confidence. What am I saying? Yes, the author is confident that the readers will maintain their faith. And yes, he also warns them not to fall away because these things go together. The way in which the church will stand firm is by hearing God's word, not hardening their hearts and encouraging each other. So he is confident, but that does not mean that he is laid back, our writer, uh, unconcerned or uninvolved in, uh, in these churches. Instead, he acts on that confidence and hope, and he expects his readers to as well. So what does he expect our readers to do? Verses 12 and 13. These are the verses that I want to focus on for today. Let me share that screen as the screen with you again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These verses um, are deliberately taking uh, the first line, uh, that is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The writer is taking those lines and applying them to his hearers that day. And I want to focus on uh, or draw your attention to two aspects of this. Um, the first one is what, is what does the writer mean by the word exhort? And the second question that I will, I will address is what does he mean by it as long as it is called today? So let's take a look at the first, uh, first aspect. What he is saying is, watch out, be careful, don't fall into the same trap as the Israelites did back then. Don't harden your hearts like they did or you will fall away like they fell in the desert. You see, it is possible to close your heart to the salvation and the revelation of God. And what the writer is saying is don't do that. It's possible to experience the presence of God and to witness his mighty acts of salvation, but turn away via an unbelieving heart. This is what happened to the Israelites when in the desert, they wanted to elect a new leader to take them back to Egypt, back to the land of slavery. This is what happened to Judas, who saw everything that Jesus did for three years, yet in the end betrayed him. What is the antidote, the solution to falling away? to hardening our hearts, it is to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what does it mean to exhort one another? This word exhort uh, is in the original language, in the Greek, uh, the word parakalene, which means to encourage, to exhort, to urge, or strongly urge. And it, it's made up of uh, kind of two compound words. Para means alongside. It's where we get our word parallel. And kalane means to call. 
So the idea of the word is to call alongside. Um, you can imagine a team of runners, uh, you know, running together and they're urging each other onwards, calling each other onwards uh, to not give up, uh, to not fall behind, uh, but to keep going uh, to, to finish the race. Uh, they have to be there for each other. Here in Hong Kong, where I live, um, I like to go hiking. Uh, there are many wonderful trails across Hong Kong um, that we can uh, hike all over. Uh, in fact, 40% uh, of Hong Kong is national park. And uh, when Sam's come and visited me uh, here in Hong Kong, I've taken him hiking um, quite a few times. But there are some people that, uh, that take hiking uh, really uh, kind of to the extreme. And uh, there is a, an annual race here in Hong Kong called the Hong Kong Trail Walker. And what it is, is it's a hundred kilometer race um, held over 48 hours. You have 48 hours to finish this race, although most, most I think finished in 24 hours or less. And in this race, you are uh, put into teams of four. Your team has to finish together or else it doesn't count. Um, or everybody has to finish. Your team doesn't finish until everybody in the team finishes. So you've got to work together. Uh, the team of four, uh, each team of four, they train together, they work together, they get to know each other. And then when they're on, on this, uh, on the trail walker race, they have to continually push each other onwards. Um, I know I have friends who've been on this race before and uh, inevitably after, um, after some time, somebody's knee or leg will break down uh, and, uh, and they'll, they'll run into trouble. And so what they have to do is they have to urge each other on. They have to push each other on. Uh, they have to encourage one another. They have to stop and take breaks and rest. Um, they, have to, they might even have to physically help each other. They have to be there for each other and they have to continue on uh, and reach the goal together. In the New Testament, the word uh, parakalane, this word exhortation or encouragement is used of taking the words of scripture uh, and, and, and using them to encourage people to continue on in their faith, just like those runners. It's used in almost every letter in the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, and has this sense of supporting, strengthening, comforting others in their faith. It's even used of God. Uh, God is called the God of all comfort, which is the same word here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he comforts uh, the disciples uh, in their troubles and in their sorrows. The word means to, to encourage, um, and it's contrasted with kind of uh, a sharp rebuke. See, in, two, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1, uh, we read, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. The same word to exhort so to exhort someone is not to be like a drill sergeant kind of barking orders come on march keep going uh you know uh, accusing somebody or abusing people no it's picking picking up those who have fallen down it's encouraging the faint-hearted it's strengthening the weak it's urging our fellow runners to keep going and what do we encourage one another to do to consider jesus the one who was faithful on our behalf. Because of his faithfulness, we are included into God's family, God's house. 
So we remind each other that our confidence and hope doesn't rest on our own efforts or our own righteousness, but on what he has done for us. What happens if we fail to do this? Well, if a church community is not encouraging or exhorting one another, then its members will be in danger of hardening their hearts the way that this psalm warns us about. There was some research done which shows that the way that uh, the way that Christians come to faith is quite varied. Um, but the way that Christians leave the church or the faith is quite predictable. People who dropped out of church or became atheists weren't driven by the appeal of atheism necessarily, but it was actually because of the way that they were treated by the church or not looked after by the church. They were not being accepted, not encouraged on their journey of faith. Like the team on the trail walker, if one member falls or needs a rest, the other members should stop and help them. They would rest together. Um, perhaps they might even need to physically support one another. It's the team that sticks together that makes it to the end. And so this passage is a warning to us in our individualistic age. It tells us that we need to realise that we have a shared responsibility to support and encourage one another. Because this is the way that God sustains his people. We stand firm by looking to Christ and looking out for each other. This is why the author can have confidence that because the people who stand firm are the ones who exhort, encourage and support one another. And the people who do that are the ones who enter God's rest. A second aspect that I want to focus on this verse is where he says, as long as it is called today. What does he mean by today? Um, does this mean that we should have church every day? Um, and I used, I used to think that, actually, um, that uh, this passage was encouraging us to, uh, to meet every day, to meet daily. Um, but upon reflection, as I was kind of rereading the passage and, and looking at it, I realized that what he is saying is we should encourage one another whenever we have the opportunity. That the every day here that he's talking about is um, kind of a timeless uh, thing whenever we have the opportunity to do so. We know that the earliest Christians did, in fact, gather every day, right at the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, but later on, uh, they gathered weekly. But even if they, but whether they gathered every day or not, the likelihood is that they had the opportunity to see each other every day, whether bumping into each other in the marketplace or the public square or in a household setting. So it's in this context that he writes, encourage each other every day. What he's saying is, where you have the opportunity, take it. Be constantly encouraging one another. Notice that the writer of, of our letter is himself engaged in this kind of encouragement. He himself is encouraging and exhorting uh, the believers that he's writing to. And in fact, in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, he calls this letter a word of exhortation. It's the same word. And yet, He's not around to encourage the recipients of his letter every day. He's not physically with them, but he does so through ink and parchment, as long as it is called today. Uh, some of the letters of scripture were written by apostles who were placed in jail. They were not able to meet with others, but they did what they could as they had the opportunity. 
And so rather than prescribing a timetable for Christians to meet, I believe that he's saying, seize the moment, do it constantly. If the writer of Hebrews was here right now, he would say, it's still called today, isn't it? As long as it's called today, keep encouraging one another. Use this moment to keep pushing each other onward. So the question for us is, in a pandemic, what can we do to obey this passage? Well, if we read every day as wherever we have opportunity, then we see that our opportunities magnify greatly. Instead of worrying, uh, like, oh, did I encourage someone today? Yes, uh, no, oh, I've got to get to it. That, that turns it into a form of legalism at best. Instead, think, well, as long as it is called today, who can I be encouraging today? And as a church, are you structured in such a way as to help people to encourage each other as much as possible? An article uh, that was written um, in a newspaper in Australia talking about when Christians are prevented from gathering talks about the way that we're not able to gather in the way that we used to because of the pandemic. But we're not entirely deprived of this opportunity. The writer says, perhaps it's better to say that it simply has had to change shape. Our gatherings have had to go online, become more variegated with local churches turning into scattered meetings in homes as restrictions permit. We need to affirm the truth that smaller, much smaller gatherings can still anticipate and share in the same heavenly gathering. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them, said Jesus, Matthew 18, verse 20. So they go on to say that meeting online also, it's still real meeting because it's an encounter with one another that is made possible by our bodily senses of sight and sound. Here in Hong Kong, uh, we've not been able to meet very much physically. Um, and because of that, I've set up different groups on Zoom for Christians to encourage one another. One group might meet to do a short course together on a book of the Bible. With another group, we'll read a book together and meet every, every month or every two months to discuss that book. In another group, we meet at lunchtimes um, to discuss how our faith connects with um, our practices at our workplaces. Many of these groups are short-term groups that meet for the purpose of encouraging one another in our particular stage. And I will continue to find ways to meet and encourage fellow Christians in our journey together. What I'm finding is that as people tire of meeting online um, in long-term groups, kind of, kind of getting what is called Zoom fatigue, now is a great time to continually form and reform smaller groups to meet for shorter periods over a particular topic of need. Secondly, since we're in the middle of a pandemic, even though it's harder to see people, it is easier than ever to reconnect with our friend networks. And so think about the different friend networks that we have. Childhood friends, school friends, university friends, present and former church friends, present and former work colleagues. How can we reach out and encourage them? For myself, I think about my classmates in my doctorate program. I'm currently enrolled in a, in a four year doctorate program. We had a cohort that went through three years together. But this year, we've all spun off to do our own dissertations. Even without the pandemic, we would not have met as a group this year. But I want us to continue our fellowship and encouragement. So I'm planning to organize a way for us to connect through our shared research and writings. 
Otherwise, we might lose touch, possibly forever. Another way in which uh, we can help each other is we might need to rethink how we use online tools. Um, I was reading another article which talked about uh, how, uh, where the author talked about how he used uh, online tools in a creative way to overcome his own experience of Zoom fatigue. Um, he was uh, uh, Zooming with uh, another friend in another country um, and uh, that friend suggested, why don't we explore one feature in Zoom to see how we might experience God together? And he says, then my friend suggested that we chat in silence by clicking on the mute button, but by keeping the video on. Without the use of speech, I became more aware of God's presence. Why don't we pray using the chat function? I suggested. You write your prayer and then I'll respond. We'll go back and forth slowly. We prayed this way for the next 20 minutes with the video on, but the audio off. I felt delight and refreshed as we wrote our prayers in the company of Christ. We had turned Zoom's chat function into a pathway for prayer. It was actually possible to go slow in Zoom. Every feature and function in Zoom, the waiting room, the breakout room, the reaction buttons, whatever, can become a tool for prayer. It's hard to do this alone. That Zoom session with my friend led me to conduct many more meetings with church members and clients to explore the interplay between the digital, the physical, and the spiritual spaces. The last thing that I want us to, uh, uh, to remember is to be thankful for when and where we can meet. See, one of the problems for the Israelites is that they forgot the gifts of God. Now, of course, you know, they could probably recall them to mind. Um, you know, they were there, they physically saw, you know, what happened. But when it says that they forgot, I believe what it means is that they forgot to be thankful for them, to be grateful to God for what he had done for them. And, to, and that would lead them to worship him. Being able to meet, whether online or physically, is one of God's gracious gifts to us. And yes, we might not be able to meet right now as we once could. Yes, Zoom can have its problems, but there are ways around it, new possibilities that we can try as we just saw. And throughout history, there have always been people, Christians, who have not been able to meet whether through persecution, um, and as I mentioned before, uh, some apostles uh, and other Christian leaders were in jail uh, at the end of their lives. But they took every opportunity to encourage others to remain fixed on Jesus and to remain thankful to God for what he has done in Jesus. One of those uh, authors was, uh, was Bonhoeffer, one of those Christian leaders, and his last days were spent alone in a Nazi prison awaiting execution. And so he wrote that it is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that one day may be taken from us. Therefore, let him who until now, who has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. So we let us then refresh our gratitude for the freedom that we've had for so long to gather with one another and prepare us to welcome it with open arms if we are able to gather once again. The freedom to gather to assemble is a gift 
give to Christians. Don't lose it. Don't forget it. Don't take it for granted, but instead use it to encourage, to remind, to encourage one another, to remind one another, to take responsibility for one another, uh, and uh, to continue to point one another to consider Christ.